You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we are releasing panel three from the Business Capital and Exit Strategy Summit in Austin, Texas. So let's start this week's episode. All right, everyone, enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right, so this third session, and we're halfway through, everybody, by the way. There's this session and then one other session, and you're going to want us to hang out. This one is your exit process. So if you're thinking from the end or you're getting close to the end, this is what you're going to want to lean into. For this session, for this panel, we have two members returning. I'd like to call up first Jerome Vogel. He was on an earlier panel. Give him a warm welcome. All right, Drew. Also returning, where is he at, is Sean Flynn. Sean, where are you at? Here he is. Come on up. Give him a warm welcome. All right. I'd also like to introduce Hall T. Martin. He is the CEO of 10 Capital and is an expert in building community. Hall, come on up. Give him a warm welcome. Your moderator for this event is Tina Dow. She is the head of investments with We3. She's also a, communi- a community builder and is seeking to make the innovation, the innovative world, a diverse place. Everybody, welcome Tina. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to this panel, Your Exit Process. What we're going to talk today about is just providing some context on what you need to think about as you grow your business and think about a potential exit. I think we all here know that um, when you're growing a business, the ideal world is you IPO. uh, But in reality, that's probably less than 3% of exits that I I see, at least. Um, And so the vast majority of exits, some of which are liquidations, um, which aren't necessarily not great from an investor perspective, uh, but the vast majority are um, M&As. Uh, and so I think for this conversation, we're going to focus a lot more on think about M&As, what that process looks like. But first, I want to give our panelists, I know you've already met some of them, a brief moment to talk about their experience with M&As and how they've supported M&As. I can go first. I uh, have a background uh, as an inventor investor. I was recently at a fr- fund here in Texas called Silverton Partners. And before that, I was at First Round Capital. I've seen a range of companies from a board perspective either get inbound offers for acquisitions or start the process for IPOs. And prior to venture, I uh, was in product and consulting and worked on a few M&As from the buyer side of the house. Uh, so that's a bit about me. And then we'll just go starting with um, Hall. Yeah, my name is Hall Martin. I'm with 10 Capital. And I come from the angel world. My background is I actually started three angel networks here in Texas, CTAN, Baylor, and Wilco, and had a lot of experience with that. And when you're with an angel group and you put money into a deal, about year five to seven, you start going back to your companies that you put money into and start talking about what was this, what are we thinking about doing for an exit and start seeing what plans or strategies or what we can do to help those guys. So that's mostly what I've been doing with exits is working with those that we have funded through our networks itself. Hi, my name is Sean Flynn. Everyone here has already met me, so I'm probably going to do a longer introduction. Um, I just 
talked about uh, getting an F two fifty and la- lacrosse boots. Um, okay, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> back order there. So the I'm an investment banker, mid market investment bank. Focus about seventy percent of what we do is sell side MMA. Uh, we also do growth capital and that, but. I mean, we've been around for about 30 years. We have six offices, 15 principals, done deals all over the world. Very familiar with you know, mergers, acquisitions, the process. And, and I'm really excited for this panel. And hopefully we got some challenging questions from the audience that I can refer to Sam Wong. Right. <laughs> I'm with the boutique law firm. We do a lot of sell side M&A. We also do buy side. And because we represent uh, venture funds and hedge funds as well, I have what I call like a, a 360 degree view of deal making. So I really understand you know, that advisor perspective, the investor perspective, the PE fund perspective, the seller perspective, the buyer perspective. So I look at all these different lenses when we're doing a deal. And we and I've done deals with this guy. Sean is really good too. Awesome. So I'll start asking some questions. I'll direct the questions um, to one of you specifically and feel free to add on. Um, but the first question is just, can you walk us through what uh, for Sean... Uh, what a typical M&A process looks like at a high level. What are all the steps and how long does it typically take? Great. Uh, so we already had the panel on raising capital. To be honest, it's a very similar process of first putting all the data together, then marketing, then negotiations. With thinking the putting the data together, you build out your data room. That could take three weeks a month, depending on how diligent the people are. While that's happening, you're creating your market material, which could be a blind profile, could be confidential information memorandum, a SIM. That could take another couple of weeks with a couple of iterations being done. While that's happening, you're creating your buyer's list, who you're going to go out to target, who writes checks that, are, that align with your company, you know, deal size, sector, geography, whatever their investment thesis is, match it up with your company. Then you're going out to market. Now that process going out to market Say you go out to maybe 500 potentials. We're, we're just saying that number. Well, how long will it take that investment bank or whoever you're working with or yourself to have these conversations? Is that two weeks, four weeks, six weeks with follow-up conversations? Because they're going to have questions. They get a blind profile. They're going to say, hey, I, you know, I want to find out more information. I'll sign an NDA, send me the SIM. All right, I have questions here, here, here. Let's set up a phone call. How long is it going to take you to run that process to get through all those conversations. So you're at a meaningful position where you can say, okay, this is where everyone is. We want indications of interest on this date. You get those indications of interest. Okay. Management calls now line it up for letters of intent, LOIs. When does that happen? Well, you have to have all the calls first. You have to have the conversations and sorry if I'm going too granular. Uh, you know, I, I could go less or, or more to be honest. Those conversations, maybe that's four weeks, right? They have, they have to have time to, to look at everything. They have to have time to do revisions. You have to have time to renegotiate those. You know, we're already at three to four months right now, maybe even longer. And then you're picking your, your dance partner to go into due diligence with, the one that you think is going to acquire based on the LOI that you want. I mean, you had to go and, and look through it, which terms you like. Do due diligence on who's offering it. Do they have the money? How are they getting it? Are they going to be good partners? Right. Do they close deals when they submit LOIs or do they just send LOIs to everyone? Like, cause you want to go in thinking, okay, if I'm going with this dance partner, they can dance. And then you go and do dil- due diligence. And is that what? 60 days, 90 days? It's probably going to be pushed back. 
So right now we're looking at that seven, eight months. So really people will say, oh, we can sell this company. No problem. Just give us, you know, two to three months. We'll, we'll, we'll close it. No, no. Reality, six to nine months. Honestly, six to nine months. If there's been deals that we've worked on, 13 months, right? Like it, it goes longer than people think. And a lot of it, yes, it can be shortened. You know, if you have your data room pretty much built out at the beginning, if you have things can be fast tracked, if you get that information back to whoever you're working with, yes, it can be fast tracked, but it's a lengthy process. It really is. There's a lot of steps that people don't know about, don't think about, a lot of conversations, back and forth, back and forth. And you have to put that into your timeline before going out to sell your company. You have to know that because you don't want to be rushed. You don't want to put at a disadvantage. You don't want to run out of funding. You don't want to run out. You don't want, well, that's what this panel is for to go into way more detail. So I, I don't want to hog the mic, but Jerome or. Yeah, I, I definitely think we'll double click on a lot of that. Um, the one thing I will note is uh, what Sean, I think, is describing as a process that's more um, a proactive sale. There's a lot of instances where um, a founder might get inbounds uh, where they're not looking to sale, uh, to do a sale. But, well, you know, 20 or so percent of the companies we work with have an acquisition offer in hand. And they say, hey, we just want to run a process because we want to bring other people to the table to compete for, for this sale. There's a company I helped get acquired. It was a three month process. They had an acquisition offer in their hand. They didn't want to go out. They just wanted someone to represent them on this side of the table through the acquisition. And yes, that was a lot faster, but they knew they had the LOI and they're like, is this good or not? We renegotiated. We got them better terms within a week. Then we did the process. It was still three months. Amazing. Cool. Um, Hall, uh, I think uh, one thing we want to uh, hear more about is who are potential buyers and what, what do they typically look like and what might be some reasons that they are looking to purchase a target? Sure. You know, buyers could be in a number of different places. They could be competitors. They could be people that are in strategic adjacencies to your company. They could also be people that are looking to get into that industry and you're already there. So there's many ways that they can go after it. And when you look at these guys, you have to think about well, what do they want from my business? Do they want the revenue? Do they want the position? Do they want the brand? Do they want the team? And so the, that value will be different for each group that you talk to, it may change a little bit from one to the other. So you have to think about where that is. If you're thinking about selling your business, the key, one of the key things you do is make a list of 20 companies you think would be of interest and then go out and talk to the CEOs of those companies just to feel them out. Do you think they see some value there? Do you think there's some interest there and so forth? And then start, and why would they be of interest to it? And so you can actually create a list based on people that you know in the industry might be interested in coming in and looking at your business. That's for a very a smaller company that's in more of a microcosm. And to be candid, a lot of businesses are, are, are in that level. They're, they're not at the, the billion dollar level. They're, they're much smaller. And you're looking for somebody maybe a little bit closer to come in and, and buy the company. Awesome. I, I do think it's important to call out. I think most M&As, at least that I've seen, um, are before Series B. So there's, there's uh, most, most businesses are, I think, sub 100 million type acquisitions. And there's uh, a ton of reasons for acquisition, and, such as like acquiring new talent, acquiring new revenue streams, taking out a competitor. Um, but one thing I would like to learn more about um, is the due diligence process. And I uh, would love if, Jerome, you could chat a bit more about what you typically see go into a data room um, and when you see that being prepared. 
Let me just uh, give the emotional journey and then I'll give the, the uh, actual <laughs> journey. So, I mean, do, doing M&A is like this. You, everybody is excited in the beginning, buyer and seller, all the advisors. And then in the middle, you get to what's called the valley of the shadow of death where there's more problems. The data room gets bigger. The question set gets bigger. There's more attorneys on the buy side. I was, I was one time in a room with, well, on a, on a phone call with 30 attorneys and it was just like me and basically. <laughs> and I, I, and what I'm saying is that it, it can wear you down as a founder, but by the time you get to the end and you sell, you get to the mountaintop and you say, you know what, Sean, I want to do it all over again. <laughs> you want to do it again, but it's that, so the due diligence is that is the most tedious, arduous part of the journey. And the reason is, especially if it's an institutional buyer, they're rolling up a lot of stats up to the higher ups. And so you need all of your corporate governance in, in ducks in a row from inception to present. You need all of your third party consents, which is always a huge issue. Institutional buyers want this stuff from the beginning. They give you heads up and you should, we can have a lot of times as an attorney, we get this stuff done early. So you're not getting performance drag on your, um, when you're trying to go out to market, you're, you're letting, you still can run your company. So third party consents is a big issue. I would say IP, you've got other IP attorneys who are going to look to see how can they, how can we tear down your patents? How can we tear down your trademarks? They're going to try to look for holes for ways that they can tear them down. So your, your, your IP is going to get scrubbed. They're going to look at all your risk. Privacy is going to be huge. Okay. What's your GDPR plan? What's your plan in US and Canada and California and Colorado? They want to know all of the plans on the, whether it's a purchase agreement or a stock or a uh, stock purchase. There's going to be schedules. And I'm not telling you this to overwhelm you. I'm just telling you to give you the facts that it, it is an arduous process. But the great thing is if you get someone like Sean as an investment banker, get an attorney, um, a great attorney in your corner, they can navigate you through this process. But it is arduous. It is long. And it, it always takes longer than you think it's going to take. Um, but at the end, just think you're getting to that mountaintop and that's the goal and that's how you sustain yourself. Say I'm a founder. I get an inbound from a possible buyer. The conversation gets pretty serious. When do I engage an investment bank? When do I engage a lawyer? Um, how does that sort of work in conjunction? And could I even just do it on my own without an investment bank? I mean, you could do it on your own, not recommended. You'll definitely, I mean, think of it, if you play basketball against a bunch of professionals and you've seen the basketball for the first time, that's kind of what it's like. I mean, you're going to be at such a disadvantage to the other people on the court. I mean, you might not even know the rules. You know, can I do this? Could I do that? What, 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 are, what are the plays? What, what's that? If you have that person on your team, well, actually that whole team, the legal, the, the investment banker, the, the accountant, all, if they're all on your team, you have all those players to pass the ball to, to ask questions to, to go down the field to, to score. The, and, and the other team certainly has that, right? And that's the team that they have. That's pretty much all they do. You know, it might be your first sale, but it might be their fifth, sixth acquisition of that year. And, and you're such at a disadvantage if you don't bring people on early. So even before getting an acquisition offer, you should already have those people more or less lined up and conversation started. I mean, really for, for us, I mean, there's a company I worked with a year ago. I've known that founder for five years. I've seen them pivot. I've had conversations. They've asked, Hey, what are the value drivers? What should we be thinking of? What are the metrics? All that stuff. How should I make this company value? 
we've had long, long conversations. So when the time was right, everyone was ready. So having those conversations early with everyone, there's drone can do magic, but you know, if you get him early on, there's so much more than he can do than when the ball's already out of bounds. That was my only sports analogy for the day. So, And I guess when you say early, at what stage should a founder be starting to think about engaging investment banks or lawyers? I mean, I think, I think the thing about counsel is when, when you start, you're, you're going to have the local, maybe you might have a local counsel, but then as you're getting bigger, you want to make sure your counsel can go toe-to-toe with institutional buyers. So that means can they go up, you know, I know Greenberg's here. There's a bunch of big firms that are here thinking about Decker, international firms. So can can your counsel um, negotiate with those kind of heavy hitters? They have deep benches. They're going to be up 20, 30 deep. Can your counsel be able to do that? And we do that. And I'll stay up to two, three in the morning if I need to. We have our other attorneys that we get on it. So I think um, the key is can can your can your counsel carry you through from not only advising you in early stages but also all the way through M and A and so but and if not usually like a good investment banker like Sean will will make introductions um, as far as the investment banking I think you start those conversations early you get to know the investment bankers you get you get to start to have an idea of who the buyers are in mind some companies even start and you've probably seen this. They start with a specific set of buyers in mind when they found the company that who they're going to go to. Maybe you don't think it through that much on the front end, but you certainly should be having these conversations to get a sense of what's going on in the market. Because if you're thinking about a sale right now, by the time you get um, quality of earnings, by the time you get all the ducks in a row, by the time you get Sean's got to put that uh, deck together and the data room, like we're we're talking months just to kind of get going. And then if you find the right dance partner. They could fall out, and you got to keep going. And so, I, I'm I'm big on starting early. It doesn't always come that way, but I start as early as you can, and so you understand the market. In uh, Hull, as an investor, um, I'm curious how you advise your companies to think about exit planning um, and how proactively they should be thinking through potential exits. Sure. Well, you should always know what values you have in the business and what they're worth on the market. You should be tracking what other companies are selling for. Of course, last year was very different from this year, and you can see why you know the value has gone way down as the, the market's changed dramatically. So you always want to know kind of where the market is these days in case you need to go down that path. When you get past Series A, you start to either have a choice, I can either raise money to go the next round, or I can sell the business. And you always have that choice one to the other. And then people sometimes make one choice or the other based on their, their current situation. The other thing I find out is that some people, when they go out to start to propose their business to sell it, they discover that they're leaving a lot of money on the table. I had a company come in that was a oil and gas services. And when they went to sell the business, they were going to get 5x times revenue. Then they, someone mentioned, well, you know, if you were capturing all that data and monetizing it, you get 10x revenue. Okay, well, we're no longer exiting. We're now raising another round to grow the business so we can actually add more to the value. So when you get in there, you start to discover what the value levers might be. And that's one reason why these things take so much longer is you're stepping back from the exit to actually put yourself in that better spot, which does not happen in six months. It's two, three years in some cases. So that's why they stretch out quite a bit. So that's what you look for as an investor is, are we really understanding what the major values are? And are we positioning ourselves to get there as we grow the company itself? Not just, you know, are we making a nice return, but are we actually thinking about the valuation on the exit? 
A uh, quick follow up. When you see someone, a, a founder who's best in class in terms of um, actually having proactive conversations with potential buyers, um, how are they making those relationships or how are they making those connections? But usually through investors or advisors who know those companies, they're actually making the introductions. One reason why you put advisors onto your board after you get past Series A is you're looking for people that can make those connections. You're probably past the, the basics of business and you're starting to look at who can actually get me into those different discussions when the time is right. So you start looking for, you start packing the board, so to speak, with advisors who know that. Awesome. Thank you. And I, I, I think that's a fantastic answer. And I've, I've seen and int- introduced companies to possible acquirers, but you don't really talk about it that way. You kind of present it in some ways as a potential strategic investor or you know, uh, get them to follow your business so that later down the line, it could be top of mind for them. So one thing we started talking about briefly is valuations. How are businesses valued? And and after we talk about valuations, we'll love to go uh, deeper in how we structure deals. And aside from cash, what other possible, um, I guess, buckets of comp could come with uh, a acquisition offer? Do you want me to answer all of it or just the first part? Or? Hmm. Let's, let's start with uh, just the first part of... Valuations? <laughs> yes. I mean, there's many different ways to, to value a company and you'll see, oh, we'll do a discount cash flow analysis. Okay, let's do a comparison analysis of these other companies. Let's do standard multiples. But honestly, the reality is whatever the market decides at that time. Okay, there, there's a lot of people that will say, oh, my company's valued at, at no, no, 10x EBITDA or this multiple or that. But is there a buyer for it at that? If there's not a buyer, then it's not valued at that. I mean, that's the reality of it. And this goes back to, I don't want to puff up the shirt of the investment banker, but depending on the process they run or your network or who you're working with, you can, one company could be because of a network, 10 million with a different network, you know, 50 million. It's just who they have contacts with, who they can sell to, who they can package it, create this value around it, have that conversation. And when we, if you run a process, you'll get these offers of, we'll give you, and this is just going to lead into the, the conversation later. You know, we'll give you 15 million cash, 5 million seller's note, 5 million rollover or something like that. Or we'll give you 25 million cash, 10 million in earn out. Or we'll, and these numbers and terms are all over the place. And we can go, we definitely will dive into what each of those means. But they're so wide in the private markets, it, it, it's crazy. Now, public's a little bit different, but most transactions are in the private market. So going back to valuations, yes, you'll hear this. Oh, mom and pop stores or gas stations will sell three times SDE or, or, five, or two times SDE. You got that or 5X EBITDA. Or, it's really what the market bears. Is there a buyer for it? Cool. And Jerome, maybe you could take the question around uh, deal structures and possibly what components could go into a deal structure yeah, that's I, common. I, yeah, the great question. And to, to add on what, what Sean said, I think the common theme that I see in bigger exits is that the acquirer is able to extract strategic value from the target. Um, I've seen too many you know, PE funds 
that maybe like a real estate fund that's kind of dabbling in kind of um, other PE and they don't really get the deal and they end up backing out or their multiple so low. And so the, the buyer has to be able to pull the value out. And that's how, like Sean says, to get what the market can bear. So as far as deal structure, I think you're looking at um, obviously cash is the number one you know, choice, but sometimes stock can be really valuable if it's a, if it's a public company. Um, you know, sometimes uh, a seller might want the public company stock for the str- <laughs> terms of strategic value in terms of tax reasons, in terms of, of uh, potential upside. Sometimes they want the cash up front. Right now, you're seeing rollover, what's called like NUCO equity. So let's say the acquirer, the acquirer will, will create a separate entity. They'll acquire the target and then the um, seller will get some rollover equity in that, in that new venture. You, I think earnouts is a way you can bridge valuation gaps. There's always a lot of litigation around them, but it is an effective way to, to kind of come and meet in the middle in terms of valuation. So I think you have to look at earnouts as a, as a really strong possibility. Um, you also, you know, if it's an aqua hire, there's also, you know, executive comp, there's shares. Um, you know, Disney just completed its BAM tech acquisition. That was a series of stages. Um, there's a lot of different, a lot of different ways you can, you can slice it. I would say right now, because of interest rates, I would say that over the next year, you're going to see acquirers who have cash. They're going to be able to take advantage of this market opportunity. Those that were really highly leveraged, it's going to be harder for them to, um, to take advantage of it because they won't be able to offer as much cash up front. But it's going to be definitely interesting. I think it's going to be a, a great year in 2023. Obviously, 2022 wasn't what 2021 was, but I really anticipate 2023 will be strong. And I want to add one thing about the multiples and, and valuation. People love to be on the golf course or maybe on the boat or wherever and say, I sold my company for 20 million or I sold my company for this many. No one ever asked them, what were the terms of that sale? Okay, that person may not actually have any. Maybe they got $2 million and the rest of it's the deferred payment that they never collect. Okay, no one knows. No one ever asked what the terms were. And that's such a huge deal. So next time anyone says, yeah, I sold my company for you know, 10 times EBITDA, I go, what were the terms of it? How much of it was cash? How much was a seller's note? How much was an earnout? That earnout, what's it tied to? Was it revenue? Was it EBITDA? Was it... You know, just this person staying there long for the next two, three years. Was it the these customers staying on? Okay, how much of it is a rollover equity in the new company? What does that look like? Where where are those shares on? Ask them what were the terms of the multiples that you got, and then you're going to find out. Wait a second, would I have taken that deal? You might not. It might be too risky for you. Maybe that lot lower valuation, that lot lower multiples, the deal that you had wanted that would have been better for you, better long term, better overall. So. Who would answer that way? Get them enough drinks. <laughs> <laughs> and our drink sponsor out there, if you saw them at the table. <laughs> hey, you got to plug that one. But, but yeah, people behind the scenes, maybe the service providers, the lawyers, the account, who knows, maybe if you're good enough friends. But I really just sit down and just go, hey, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I'm about to negotiate my, my, my sale, my company, and ask questions to your advisors because they'll tell you, you know, the risk reward here. This is what it's kind of looking like. This is how you should think about it. Your wealth advisor in advance, that guy, talk to your wealth advisor, talks to your tax planner before you even enter the, the mergers acquisition process. Cause they're going to tell you strategies. They're going to say, well, we can do this now, but we can't do this later. We can do this up to this date. 
have those conversations. There's, there's a whole team to talk about, to talk to even before you sell and then during the sale, then post sale and have all these people lined up before. I mean, really going back to everyone preparing those conversations. It's a one to year process before you want to sell if you really want to do it right. Or talk to these guys on stage. They're fine. <laughs> and this is a question for everyone. And I think after that, we'll move to audience questions. Um, but it seems like there's often there's a lot of LOIs that you know um, could start and fall through. Uh, what percentage of offers, or like broadly a range of percentage, do you see acquisitions sort of fall through? And what are some common reasons that they fall through? From my side, I'd see a lot of LIs fall, fall through because in the end, the terms weren't quite what they wanted it to be. We couldn't meet in the middle. It was too far apart. And so we just couldn't close the gap. What do you see? Okay. So this is a great question. Going back to panel one, do your due diligence on whoever makes the offer? Because you can ask them, that private equity, how many LOIs did you send out over the last five years? How many of those were closed deals? Oh, we sent out nine LOIs, seven were closed. Great. Tell us about those two that didn't close. Why? Ask them questions. You're doing due diligence on them, whoever gives you the LOI before saying, hey, we're going to the dance together. So if you do your due diligence on who submit the LOIs, and this is one thing I've been seeing a lot this you know last year, are these fundless sponsors. So fundless mm-hmm. sponsors are just some guy from Harvard or whoever that read this book about buying businesses. I, I go and I negotiate the contract then under contract, then I go to my alumni investor friends and they raise the capital, then I run the company and then we sell it and there's all these splits and everything. They'll give these LOIs of 120 day due diligence close and people will sign them. And you're like, why would you sign that? He clearly doesn't have the money. Do you even ask if he has the money or not? Uh, well, let me go check. You know, like, what? and then they'll check like, oh yeah, I have to go out and raise the the money based on this LOI that's, uh, that's signed. It's like, really? So when people don't do due diligence on who gives them the LOIs, and there's a lot of laughter here, that's where a lot of these LOIs fall out. Fall out. Also, did they do due diligence on your company before submitting the LOI? Did they see the SIM? Did it answer all their questions? Did they have the management calls? Did they ask all the questions? Did, they, did you give them access to the data room? You know, sometimes you, you might have two different sets of data room. This one will show, this one we won't, you know, but this information. How much time did they spend doing due diligence on your company before giving you that LOI? How much did you spend on them before signing the LOI? That due diligence process, all it should be really is just to check the boxes off that everything was said does check out. And there's not these massive skeletons. And those skeletons, did you work with your client to actually get all those fixed in advance? Or are you discovering stuff about them about ridiculous things are out there? Basically, like if everything's prepared, it, it lowers that of it not being finished. It, it lowers that. I mean, if you have the map to get to the finish line versus trying to run on your own, you're more likely to get to that finish line. Is that diligence, uh, the reverse diligence on the buyer typically done by the investment bank or the lawyer? By everyone on the team. But but definitely the investment banker, when they're submitting the LOIs to their clients saying, hey, these are the 10 that we got. Okay, these are the terms. This Well, first off, the LOIs should be each one that you're talking to, you should say, hey, submit your LOIs on this date. We want this format. We want this information. We want to know where the funds are coming from, how long due diligence, what's your expectation for the transition period for the owners. What's, you know, it should be really mapped out so you can compare them. If it's just send me an LOI, this says this, this says that, this says and you're like, oh, geez, what? I'm missing pieces here, missing pieces there, but it's just really laid out. Do this, 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 this. 
and you see who actually listens, but they should, because I mean, who you're dealing with, I mean, most of the time they got hundreds of millions or whatever, you'll be able to compare them apples to apples, not apples to oranges. And at that time, you start asking questions. I mean, yes, there's there's these calls, but you're asking their team, hey, you know, when was the last time you closed? Are you working on any other transactions right now? Is this your priority? Are you looking at anyone? You know, you can ask these questions. You're you're and if they shy away, they're not answering, you know, there's red flags there. Cool. Uh, Jerome, anything else to add before uh, we do Q&A? Sure. I would say really quickly, our, our firm is big on market intelligence. And I think that investment bankers are a great source of market intelligence in terms of, okay, what is this P fund like? What's their typical process like? Are they, you know, do they typically send out a lot of LOIs or are they more sharpshooters? Like, so I think, um, and as attorneys, we have that, we have that knowledge too, but I think it's particularly investment bankers have a Rolodex of that information. So to the extent your team can get any direct reputational knowledge, talking to other attorneys and people, hey, have you worked with this P firm before close a deal? What's it like? You know, you can you can get market data. And I think that'll really help you along with those brilliant questions that you mentioned. But I, I think that if you tie it all together, you can get a better sense of where it's going. Cause the 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 best offer on the LOI may not be the actual one that's sparkling the most. It may be one that's kind of maybe more in the middle of the road, but it's gonna actually close. Oh. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.